Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So, you know those golden records that traveled on the Voyager spacecraft? Yeah, they were loaded up with greetings and different languages and these concertos. Wasn't actually Johnny B. Good on there, too? Yeah, that's right. There's some uh, Chuck Berry on the record. But I was reading this new book by Nick Pineson. It's called Spying on Whales. And one of the things he says is that there are actually whale songs on that record as well. So in the 1970s, scientists had just discovered that whales have these complex songs that they repeat in loops. And each whale improvises on that loop. It's really remarkable. But Pines's point is that in the nearly 50 years since, we still don't really understand these songs. But even then, we find them so intriguing and so beautiful that we're happy to throw them on a record in case aliens might find them interesting, too. But uh, reading this book made me think we should really dig into whales. Like, why are they so large? How do they sustain these massive bodies? I mean, these creatures are bigger than any dinosaurs that have ever lived. And also, why do they have belly buttons? <laughs> Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hot Ticketer. And the man on the other side of the soundproof glass, not fully prepared today, Mango. I do see he's got eBay up on his computer, and he's looking up all of these Shamu T-shirts, Shamu <laughs> coffee mugs. So he's probably going to order some of those. I don't know when he's going to wear them. I'm a little bit disappointed, uh-huh. but I'm sure he'll get something. But that's our good friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, today on the program, we're chatting with Nick Pionson. He's the curator of fossil marine mammals at the Smithsonian Institute's National Museum of Natural History, which is, of course, in Washington, D.C. And he's the author of this wonderful new book called Spying on Whales, the Past, Present, and Future of Earth's Most Awesome Creatures. Nick Pionson, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Happy to be here. So going way back, one of the, one of the first things I stumbled into when uh, when reading your book here was that 
the first whales were land-dwelling creatures the size of a German shepherd, that they walked on four legs and even had the snout instead of a blowhole. And I have to admit, Nick, when when I first saw this fact, I thought, uh-oh, this guy might not know what a whale is, because like, that <laughs> is not describing a whale. So can you explain this? I mean, that is so bizarre to both know that that connection is there and then to know how that connection is there. So can you talk us through this a little bit? Let's go back to have a whale in your head, and you're probably imagining a humpback whale or a killer whale. Mm -hmm. And just looking at the basics of its DNA to know genealogical relationships, that whale in your head is most closely related to mammals that have four legs and live on land for the most part. So that those are deer, pigs, cattle, sheep, um, hippos, which are semi-aquatic. They swim in the water pretty well, mm -hmm. but they do have four weight-bearing limbs. And whales really don't look like that at all. So the earliest whales had four weight-bearing limbs. It makes them look a lot like uh, their near relatives today. But in the process of about 10 million years, we have this great fossil record of how they've transformed the loss of hind limbs, the transformation of forelimbs into paddles, and then all the changes that happen to their skulls. Because when they undergo these transitions, especially like this one from land to sea, well, your you know vision has to change, how you smell changes, how you hear changes. We have that documented in the fossil record. What sort of timeline are we looking at here? Like, well, well, when does this dog sort of uh, appear on, on Earth? You should be really careful and say dog-like. Dog-like. <laughs> dogs are a completely different group of mammals. Totally. Um, so this happens uh, in about the space of a 10 million years from 50 to about 40 million years ago. And this time period is interesting because it's during a period that was the last greenhouse Earth. And that's the last time in Earth history that we had global carbon dioxide concentrations that are closest to the ones that we may head to in the coming century or two. Whales evolved in an island archipelago that bordered uh, the equator. So um, territory that is now India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, the entire Middle East, that used to be a giant equatorial seaway. Uh, today, that's now been reduced to the Mediterranean. Uh, but 50 plus million years ago, that was open waters. And there happened to be this giant archipelago of, of land. And, you know, if you read anything about evolution on island, you know, crazy stuff happens. So I'm not so surprised that the earliest whales happened in this setting. Mm -hmm. You know, Nick, there's some great illustrations in the book. And, and one is of this uh, Basilosaurus. And I guess this was one of the first fully aquatic whales. And supposedly this whale had one of the strongest bites of any mammal ever, or at least as you've said here. So so how do we know this? That's a great question. So one of the ways that we can figure out how strong uh, an extinct organism might bite um, is by modeling it. So you can create a computer model based on the digital data, the geometry of that animal's teeth or its skull, I'd say especially teeth plus skull, because you want to know the bone that's holding the the business end of whatever's chomping down. <laughs> and when people have done those computational analyses, and they do it with Basilosaurus, which again had a three-foot-long skull. So one, there are not that many mammals with teeth that have three-foot-long skulls. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. A polar bear may have a skull that's um, 40 centimeters long. Uh, that's barely, uh, that's not even a foot and a half. 
But uh, Basilosaurus had a three-foot-long skull with these giant teeth that are the size of your palm. Um, so the numbers that you get are that it has a bite force unrivaled by any other mammal. So, Nick, well, one thing I still don't understand is how did whales get so big and why did they stop growing? Like, why does a 110-foot body work for them but maybe not a 200-foot body? So that's that's a question I tried to explore in the book which and, and emphasize that um, getting big over evolutionary time is really um, a set of trade-offs. There's a lot of reasons that it might be advantageous to get really big. Uh, then there are a lot of reasons why it may not be. It seems like for filter feeding whales, they only get big in the last few million years. Uh, and what's interesting about that time frame is in contrast to greenhouse earth during the first few million years of whale evolution, the last few million years have been happening under ice age earth, a time when we have ice caps both south and north. Global oceans became patchier in space and time in terms of their resources with the onset of the ice ages. So these kind of uh, these natural history films where you see giant schools of fish and bait balls and krill aggregations that happen off the coast of South Africa or off of Chile or off of California. Those are very recent geologic phenomena, which haven't really been around that long. And we think this is deeply tied to the selective forces that allowed whales to become big. So migrating the long distances to arrive at those places where food is very dense in space and time, being big helps. But on the cost side, if you're a lunge feeding whale, you really can't be much bigger than about 110 feet. Otherwise, you can't close your mouth fast enough. So hmm. that's those are the trade-offs with getting big. Now, could a different kind of whale get much bigger? Maybe, uh, but that hasn't yet evolved in as far as we know. So, Nick, you talk about the whales traveling. I'm curious. I, I know different types of whales travel different distances, but but how long are we talking for some whales? So some whales don't range that far, uh, but others do. And these filter-feeding whales, so ones that are like um, humpbacks or blue whales or minke whales, they can range over tens of thousands of miles. Um, gray whales, for example, have no problem, it seems, migrating 20,000 miles. Humpbacks will migrate from Maui in Hawaii to the panhandle of Alaska every year. That's a scale that I really tried to convey in the book is that whales range over entire ocean basins in many cases. So they're living at these big scales. That's a way that whales are teaching us about these bigger ideas about how oceans work um, that I think is really important. Nick, we've got so many more questions, but we've got to take a little break first. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. 
Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. We're here with Nick Pineson. You know, when you were discussing the size of a whale and how uh, they can only get so large because they need their jaws to clamp fast enough to get the food, I was fascinated by some of the different strategies that whales use to hunt that you've described. And I was curious if you could sort of go through some of those because, like, the way they can uh, hold their breath and dive deep or, or almost turn their jaws into parachutes or how some pirouette when they lunge, it, it was just really beautiful. And, and I'd, I'd love for the listeners to be able to hear some of that stuff. Sure. I mean, I think uh, it goes back to this idealized whale that you have in your head. Um, it oversimplifies the incredible diversity of living whales to say nothing about all the crazy extinct ones that we know of. Uh, but among the living whales, you'll see some have a mustachioed fringe hanging from the top of their mouth. Uh, that's uh, baleen. Uh, and so those are the filter feeding whales. That's one group. The other one are toothed whales. Now, some of the toothed whales have teeth, others don't, but they all echolocate. They use uh, a form of biological sonar to navigate, to hunt, 
the filter feeding ones will use their mustachioed fringe of baleen to capture aggregates of prey uh, in bulk. So you're making the highest return on the investment of feeding style. And some of these filter feeders will lunge the way a blue whale will or a humpback. Um, others do a style of filter feeding called skim feeding. So these are like bowheads and right whales where they'll um, hover around the surface and they're not taking gulps. They're just kind of passing through a giant super organism of prey. For the other group of whales, the toothed whales, uh, they use echolocation. And in some cases, these are the deep diving ones that will dive thousands of feet deep in search of prey. Sperm whales, beaked whales, um, even many oceanic dolphins, a bottlenose dolphin, will dive very, very deep um, beyond the reach of light for their prey. And the way how you can do that is if you have a way of navigating an underwater world without light, and that's using sound. This is an outstanding question is why haven't um, – whale prey, toothed whale prey, evolved defenses against echolocation because it seems like a supremely advantageous tool sure. mm -hmm. for trying to hunt. Um, and that's, that's still not entirely well known. And that's in part because we don't actually see whales feeding at depth. I mean, this whole story mm. of uh, the squid and the whale, sperm whales feeding on giant squid, nobody's ever seen that. We see the <laughs> effects of that and we would all love to see it. I mean, that's just one of these amazing, you know, if you could ever get a BBC film crew to film it, that would be awesome. That's, yeah. but we've never seen it. So we have to infer it uh, either from gut contents or the scars or chunks of uh, giant squid tentacles that float around sperm whales after they come to the surface. Um, it's just there's a lot about whale science that we don't see directly, so we have to be clever about how we study it. Well, it, it seems for you know not for lack of trying though, because you talk about that echolocation and how it's so sophisticated in some whales that you know even our military has invested, especially in the '60s, so much in yeah. studying that ability to echolocate. Yeah. Why is it so much more sophisticated than what we're able to create with, you know, computers and all the technology that we have? Well, I mean, whales have the advantage of evolution. They have right. the advantage of tens of millions of years of evolution. <laughs> substitute for that, right? Um, evolution in, a, in an environment that's actually really complex and has properties that are very different from the one that we operate in daily. I mean, water is a different medium, has different properties for the physics of signals moving through it, whether it's sound or light. Whales have had tens of millions of years to evolve solutions to that. So one thing I didn't realize before this was uh, how long a whale could live. And in your chapter on Arctic time machines, you talk about bowhead whales and how finding harpoons actually helped us determine their lifespans. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, it's, I think, surprising to people to realize that Americans whale today. It just doesn't happen typically in the lower 48 states. Mm -hmm. But um, many indigenous cultures in the Arctic require marine mammal meat as sustenance. That's food for how people live. Mm -hmm. And um, this is ongoing in the north slope of Alaska. And by recovering some of these bowhead whale carcasses, what um, scientists have found is tools embedded in these uh in the bodies of these bowhead whales that clearly came from a different era of hunting wow these harpoon heads are almost like iphones or smartphones in some ways and that you can tell when they must have been embedded <laughs> in the body based on their technological which uh, generation so you know <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. So there was a changeover from stone harpoons to metal harpoons in the 19th century. And you know that the whale that was um, an unsuccessful strike must have been an adult when it was hit because a juvenile would not have survived. So that whale that was collected in the late 20th century in this case must have been well over 100 years old. And the best guess was about 130. And that exactly parallels the kind of data you could get from biological tissues uh, from their ovaries. So different lines of evidence are telling us that bowhead whales are able to live much more than a century. And some of the amino acid data was coming back with data of 200 years. And so unbelievable. Um, yeah. that's, that's, I mean, it seems unbelievable, but I think the implication of that is that there are whales that have lived through the entire uh, rise and fall of major historical events in human history, like mm-hmm. industrial whaling, or the rise of atomic weapons testing, um, or you know, you name it. In terms of our technological innovation, or the things we put out in the environment, whales, individual whales, have persisted through that. So, by if we were able to study these whales in whatever form, they probably could tell us a lot about what has happened to the environment. Fortunately, in places like the Smithsonian, we have bowhead baleen that goes back well well over 150 years. If baleen is able to tell us about isotopic history, so the the chemical history of the environment, uh, then these these pieces of bowhead baleen from the 19th century, before fossil fuels were burned, could tell us a lot about how the world's changed. That's really interesting. So... You know, one thing you mentioned there was whaling, and I was fascinated that you actually worked or observed at a whaling station in Iceland, and I kind of wouldn't have expected that commercial whaling and this pure scientific study would have intersected like that. Can you talk a little bit about, like, why you chose to work there and how it benefited your understanding of whales? Whaling is something that's happened for thousands of years in human history, and it still goes on today. Um Many people have emotional reactions to it, uh, for sure. And uh, it's hunting like any other mammal hunting. Uh, so it goes all the issues that you may have with big game hunting are certainly applied to whaling. And there's two main forms today that it happens in. Uh, commercial whaling, which is undertaken by Iceland and Norway. So they see whaling as no different from a fishery um, and they sell the meat that's collected that's that's from a killed whale. Uh, and then the other form of whaling is so-called scientific whaling that happens in Japan. You know, and for the latter, I would say that that's agenda-driven science, and we should always be skeptical of agenda-driven science because that's saying that you kind of know the answer before you go out and look for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whaling happens in a social context, and it's clear that scientific whaling in Japan is not really about the science because we can answer those questions that they have using non-lethal ways. Uh, That is certainly true. So scientific whaling really doesn't have that much of a reason for existing. Commercial whaling, well, that's within the sovereignty of those nations. Um, And from my standpoint as a scientist, um, having a a relationship with uh, those industrial operations, especially in Iceland, has been a boon to understanding some key parts of the anatomy of these lunge feeding whales. And it's providing information that we wouldn't otherwise have. And that has to do with the logistics of working with very large carcasses. So a 70 foot fin whale carcass that's freshly killed gives you information that you really couldn't otherwise get, certainly from a stranded whale. When whales strand, 
Uh, one, you don't have the equipment at your disposal. You usually don't have 20 men with giant knives and steam-driven winches to manipulate and rotate the carcass and pull different uh, parts of the anatomy into some way that you can actually study it. Um, and certainly the tissue is not as fresh. And when tissue decays, it's far less useful for some kinds of questions, especially if you're looking at nervous tissue or muscle tissue. So um, the kind of opportunity you have at a commercial whaling station is really different from any other opportunity. That situation is the same that's applied to indigenous hunting. Uh, I have colleagues who work in Alaska and opportunistically sample from bowhead hunts. Uh, it's the same kinds of anatomical questions that you can't answer from a stranded whale. So that was what, um, those are kind of the, the circumstances that allowed us to work in Iceland and yielded all the insights that I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the population of you know, many of the, the better known species of whale these days. And, and how does that compare to where it was, you know, a couple hundred years ago or a thousand years ago? How are whales doing in general, I guess, is the question. Many of the whales that were hunted during industrial whaling, and especially in the 20th century, when many of the populations for many species were brought down 90 plus percent from their baselines. So blue whales now, um, the po- global population of blue whales is probably around one to five percent of its starting point in the 20th century and some 200 300 several hundred thousand blue whales were killed in the process of the 20th century alone uh that's certainly lowered genetic diversity that's lowered the individual number of the population uh it's changed where those whales are in the world and maybe even where they migrate and maybe by extension the the structure and function of ocean food webs by removing that scale biomass. And it's not just blue whales, of course, humpbacks, minke whales, say whales. So the, the legacy of whaling on world's whales uh, is vast. And we don't, in many cases, have that pre-whaling baseline. So it's left whale scientists to infer that. And the two main ways to infer it are either from calculations using uh, current genetic diversity to estimate what the population size was in the past using DNA. And the other approach is to look at whaling records and look at catch records and try to infer. And uh, we get different magnitudes when we look at those two lines of evidence. But in both cases, they tell us there were many, many more whales before whaling. Now, whaling today doesn't really happen at that scale. Uh, Fewer than 1,000 whales are killed every year by whaling, total, globally. Whaling has some serious ethics and geopolitics with it, Um, It doesn't seem like it's going away and it doesn't seem like as big of a problem to me as global fisheries and our appetite for seafood. That's really what's causing a lot of the major harm to world's whales. Um, You know, I think a whale killed by a harpoon probably dies in a more humane fashion than uh, whales that are entangled in nets. What's ethical and what's humane about whales is not just a question for scientists. Uh, But when we come to the facts of just how many mortalities there are per year, you know, that's, I think, where we should listen to scientists and science should inform policy much better. Okay, well, we have several more questions for you, Nick. But before we get to those, let's take a quick break. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television 
today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. We're here with the author of a wonderful new book called Spying on Whales, The Past, Present, and Future of Earth's Most Awesome Creatures. You know, I think when people uh, imagine whales, other than size, one of the things they think about at first are are the whale sounds, the whale noises, and communication. Over the past few decades, are we getting a better sense of what exactly these whales are trying to communicate with one another, or is it still this great mystery? Oh, I'd say it's still a great mystery. I mean, it's clear that whales communicate to each other with uh, in information-rich ways. That content of the signal that they're using to communicate with each other acoustically is saying a lot. 
Now, what it means, we don't really know. We don't have a context for that meaning. So we don't know if they're saying like, hey, lunch is over there, or the answer to the universe is blank, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's fundamentally inscrutable. We really haven't hacked that. And I think that has a lot to do with the complexity of whales on the one hand and the environment they live in on the other. And our best ways to investigate that are whales in captivity, which may be doing something very different from what whales in the wild are doing. Uh, and again, that's logistically really challenging to do. Uh, and mysteries aren't bad things in science. Mysteries, I think, are great things and a source of inspiration and creativity. So I'm actually, you know, as I say in the book, I think this is the golden age for whale science. Uh, we're learning more about whales in more ways than we ever have before. So I'm really uh, hopeful and um, enthusiastic to see what future scientists do. You know, Nick, I, I loved reading about all the adventures you go on in this book, but I also really love just the little details I hadn't thought about whales, like um, that they have belly buttons or that they can be right or left-handed or that they, you know, come up to breathe in a synchronized manner. I, I, I think it's really wonderful. But Spying with Whales is, is really such a fascinating book. I, I, uh, I was wondering, what do you hope readers get out of it? Yeah, this boy, there's a lot of things I hope readers get out of it. One of the big messages, I think, is that um, there's there's amazing aspects of the natural world everywhere. It's not just with whales. It could be with trees. It can be with uh, insects. There's amazing things to know about the world. But how we know about things is really a question that science delivers on in a real way. And I think science can be intimidating to a lot of people who don't have a background in science or maybe didn't like science in school or um, just don't really get it. And what I really wanted to do in the book was to tell stories about how we know and to tell those stories by way of telling the people involved with them so that the stories of science become stories about people. Uh, because people are doing the science. You know, science doesn't happen in a vacuum and, and that science is not straightforward and cookbook like uh, it happens serendipitously it happens from a lot of hard work uh, it can be random um, so there's all these unusual aspects about how science is done that I think people may not appreciate and that the way to share those stories is to share those stories of discovery as in in a biographical way uh, so that's really something I try to do in the book was that a narrative about science is really a narrative about scientists if that makes any sense it does. So, you know, Mango and I both found this book to be so delightful. I, I hope our listeners will check it out. It's called Spying on Whales, the Past, Present, and Future of Earth's Most Awesome Creatures. And it's on shelves everywhere. But Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Happy to be here. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who?
Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 